We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 344 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Oxygen Leak, Glass Ball, First Steps, and the Lunar Rover. This is a CBS News special report. A ride on the moon. The flight of Apollo 15. This morning, astronauts Scott and Irwin take a drive on the moon. Sponsored by orange-flavored and new grape-flavored Tang for spacemen and Earth families. Reporting from the CBS News Space Headquarters in New York, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good morning. Apollo 15 astronauts David Scott and Jim Irwin are up and about on the moon and they're preparing for their first adventure outside the lunar lander Falcon. They should be leaving the Falcon in uh, just about 25 minutes from now for a long seven-hour walk on the moon, or a ride this time. During the night, they got some of the sound asleep of the mission, about five hours of it, but as so often happens when a person is getting a good night's sleep like that, something had to wake them up early. After a good night's sleep, Houston woke the astronauts up an hour early the next morning because of a slight oxygen leak. It was still pitch black inside the lunar module when they turned the lights on and got out of their hammocks. Dave went to the window and raised the shade to let the morning sun in. And lo and behold, as he looked out, still in a morning mind fog, he saw the brilliant lunar surface. Suddenly, a flood of emotions overcame him. They were actually on the moon. Jim, he said, raise your blinds. Look out there. It's spectacular. Oh, uh, Houston, this is Roger. Uh, Roger, good morning, Dave. Waking you up an hour early because we've got a little problem on board uh, we need addressed. Uh, when you get a moment to uh, get something to write it down, let me uh, talk to you about it in detail. The problem we're looking at is uh, leaking descent O2, and we're trying to determine whether we've got a small cabin leak or a leak in the oxygen system itself. Over. Somewhere a small leak had sprung, and slowly their precious oxygen was escaping into space. Within minutes, the two crewmen found the trouble, a valve and a waste transfer tube running from the spacecraft, uh, space suits actually, to the outside of the lunar module. They turned off the valve and the problem was corrected. Oxygen pressure quickly returned to normal. However, some eight to nine pounds of the 96 pounds of oxygen on board had been lost. That's almost 10%. Now, ground control says this will not prevent the full ambitious three-day schedule of moon exploration from being carried out, but it will be rather close. 
It's estimated that Scott and Irwin will have just about two pounds of oxygen above their safety margin when they are ready to lift off from the moon on Monday. Told about that situation, Scott quipped, okay, we'll breathe slowly and save as much as we can. And that's not just clearly a joke. Uh, actually, they can conserve some of their consumables, uh, oxygen and coolant water, by not working as hard as they might otherwise. Now let's listen to a tape of the astronauts and ground control talking about that problem. As you heard, the air leak was caused by a urine dump valve they had left open, and once that was corrected, the problem was solved, and the crew began their day about 22 minutes early. Before long, the astronauts began the lengthy process of suiting up. This involved a repeat of the elaborate procedure they had undergone prior to launch, this time without any help. Additionally, they were required to wear many extra protective layers. The first was a diaper-like pair of short pants worn with their motorman's helper. After attaching their biosensors instead of long johns, they donned the Essential Liquid Cooling Garment, or LCG. It was a nylon spandex knit outfit through which was threaded a mesh of plastic tubes carrying constantly cooled water to protect them from the intense heat of the sun. Then they helped each other into their pressure garment assemblies, or PGAs. They put outer silicon-soled moon boots on and strapped on their bulky backpacks called Portable Life Support Systems, or PLESIS. These contain systems to supply and recycle oxygen for breathing, another system to control suit pressure, and the water for the liquid cooling garment. On top of their clear helmets, they each locked on outer plastic shells fitted with three eye shades and both an inner and an outer protective visor to filter ultraviolet and infrared rays. It slightly restricted their lateral vision, but without it, the inner helmet allowed them full visibility. Over their molded gloves, they wore outer thermal gloves. After donning their suits, they had to mount the backpacks and connect their oxygen, water, and electrical hoses and cables to their suits. They had to check and verify that everything was working as well. To the astronauts, donning all this equipment was the most arduous part of the mission on the lunar surface. It took over two hours. It turned out Dave and Jim had more conversation while dressing than they had all together in the preceding five days. Of course, during the entire procedure, they checked each other's equipment thoroughly, and when Irwin examined his portable life support system, 
he found a large-sized nick in the radio antenna. Irwin and Scott decided that there was no need to bring the matter to Houston's attention. They wanted to avoid discussion that might delay their EVA. Instead, they ended up using gray tape to wrap and reinforce it at the weak point so that it wouldn't break off. Finally, when everything was go, they depressurized the lunar module and opened the front hatch. Roger, Falcon, you're go for depress. Let's take a look at Hadley. Good show. Okay, Jim, you ready with the circuit breakers? Yeah. CB-16, ECS cabin repress open. Cabin repress. Open. CB-16, COM TV closed. COM TV closed. A cabin repress valve to close. Cabin repress. Besides excitement and pride at the prospect of becoming the seventh man to walk on the surface of the moon, Scott felt huge relief that he would finally be escaping the confined quarters of the spacecraft. For the past five days, they had been like exotic birds in an elaborate cage. Now, they were about to be set free. It was a great feeling. But getting out of the lunar module was no easy matter. Wearing all that extra equipment, they could just squeeze out of the forward hatch, and the only way they could do that was by bending down on both knees and crawling out backwards onto the Falcon's porch. Scott went through this awkward procedure first, with Irwin guiding him. Okay, down a little further, Dave. Yeah, the back of the place just hitting the uh, disky jet. Yeah, I, I was caught on the uh, jettison bag. How's that? You're clearing, the, uh, clearing it now. Over a little to your, uh, little to your left. Down a little more, lift to your left. Okay. How's that? Good. 
Look at the antenna. Hold right there. Okay, your antenna is deployed. Okay. Okay, Dave, and superb television picture down here. Oh, that's encouraging. Scott gave little thought to what he would say when he took his first step on lunar soil. But after squeezing free of the front porch and almost hopping down Falcon's open rung ladder, he was quite certain. Can you make out what we're seeing there up? Well, it looks like the ladder does, that he'll come down. I think they're seeing the insulation, uh, the orange insulation, gold insulation across the equipment bank. On one of the legs that, yes. uh, on which that ladder is attached, I think, isn't it? That's, that's, Jim, that's Houston it. Sure. requesting intermediate cooling. Okay. Houston requesting intermediate cooling. This looks like that long step down from that last ladder run. I think we're sitting here wondering what Dave's immortal quote will be today. Yeah. <laughs> Got to see his feet uh, coming down that ladder there in just a moment. Then, Up at the top of the picture on the left-hand side, there he is. Oh, it's great resonance. Hey, look at that! Let's get the color. Oh, superb picture. What a picture! Maybe the gold of the faceplate shows clearly. That's as good as photograph. Extraordinary television picture here. Okay, uh, extraordinary television. See the read okay, back there? I was interested in receiving it and broadcasting it. See it out here in the wonders of the unknown at Hadley. I sort of realize there's a fundamental truth to our nature. Man must explore. And this is exploration at its greatest. In case that was not clear, Scott's words were, As I stand out here in the wonders of the unknown at Hadley, I sort of realize there's a fundamental truth to our nature. Scott then paused. With his heart racing, he realized the enormity of this moment for which he had trained so intensively for, for seven and a half years, and then he continued, Man must explore, and this is exploration at its greatest. End quote. Then Jim began his egress. Jim's egress was more difficult since there was no one inside to guide him out. Jim did get hung in the hatch, and Dave did his best from his vantage point to talk him out. It was a tight squeeze going out backwards on your belly. Jim struggled a little more with the ladder as well since his legs were shorter than Dave's. 
When his feet came to rest on the foot pad, Jim thought it was the surface of the moon. But as soon as he put all his weight down, the foot pad rotated and he had to swing around, hanging on to the ladder to keep from going on his back. Jim Irwin getting anxious. <laughs> Sitting up there in the door and ready to come down in the moon service. There he comes. Now Dave's going back up the ladder to see what, what Jim's problem is. Apparently he's having a little difficulty getting out of the door. I notice Dave seems to be adapting to the one six gravity very well. practice backing out of that door, why is it so difficult when you get in the lunar environment? Well, I think perhaps the fact that uh, the angle has to be exactly right, Walter, was the problem. It sounded as... Okay, now, Jim, I'm going to put a big circle around this glass ball so we can... Don't, uh, mess it up. It's pretty neat. Do you want me to take it as a contingency sample? Yeah, I wish we had. Uh, we ought to document it. It won't lose it. But that front pad is really, uh... This is a big brass ball okay, they saw out of the window of the spacecraft. Yes, he mentioned that last night, Walter. It must have been right in this field of view, and uh, obviously it's something that's unique. Here. Here, that it's interesting. We could even tell that uh, Jim didn't have his visor down. Now it's down. The light protector visor. I'll get this glass ball here on the... Why don't you save it? Let's document it. Okay, I'm going to move on to the contingency sample. Thank you, Dan. The contingency sample is just a, really a random collection of rocks uh, to be sure that they've got something in case an emergency came up and had to go back. Reminds me of Sun Valley. Thank you, Dan. That glass ball was large enough for Dave to see from the line, but it has to be unique. Certainly, uh, spherical. Uh, Glass has been seen before and collected before, but only in very small, very small spheres. Yes, I gather the geologists down there were very anxious that they got that one right quick before anything happened to it. Yes, so. being as being as close to the limb as it is in the normal movements, they might kick some dust over it or disturb it. So I think it's a good idea to document it right away. You heard Dave. Al Shepard and Walter Cronkite talk about a glass ball Dave found. This was a type of volcanic material called pyroclastic glass. In order for lava to form a glass rather than to crystallize into mineral grains, it must cool very quickly. This sort of rapid cooling can occur if an explosive volcanic eruption hurls material high above the moon's surface, and the material falls back down in the form of small beads. This type of explosive volcanic eruption is also known to occur on Earth and is called a pyroclastic eruption or 
fire fountain by geologists. Several types of volcanic glass occurred in the Apollo 15 samples, the most common and famous of which was the green glass. This glass was very rich in the element magnesium, which caused the green color. Studies of the green glass indicated that it originated about 400 kilometers below the moon's surface. Pryoclastic glass was also collected on Apollo 17. As Jim reached the bottom of the ladder and nearly fell, his first thoughts on the moon were somewhat less philosophical than Dave's. Instead, Jim thought, Oh my golly, I'm going to fall on my backside in front of all these millions of television viewers. Of course, Jim did catch himself and recovered his dignity as he heard Dave say, Well, I see why we're in a tilt. We've got, uh, that's very interesting. There's so much, so much, uh, hummocky ground around here. We're on a slope of probably about 10 degrees. And, uh, the left rear foot pad is probably about two feet lower than the right rear foot pad. And the uh, left front's a little low, too. But the limb looks like it's in good shape. Houston would occasionally refer to the lunar module as the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which Dave did not really appreciate. As Jim gazed to the south, the terrain reminded him of Sun Valley, Idaho Ski Resort. Jim thought the Apennines were very familiar looking. They were rounded and treeless, and they were even mountains that looked like half-dollar and dollar mountains in Sun Valley. They looked like excellent ski slopes. All around them, there was soft material about three inches deep, just like powdered snow, and they knew that underneath this dust, there might be rocks that they could trip over. If they did... It would not be a serious matter because they wouldn't fall very hard. On the moon, Jim only weighed 26 pounds. 50 pounds suited up with all his equipment. On the earth, he weighed 160 pounds. The suit weighed 60 and the backpack about 80 pounds. So it was a real chore to walk. But on the moon at 16 G, it was easy and exhilarating. But the suit restricted movement. That's why they didn't walk with a natural gait. Since they didn't have the weight of their legs available to push against the suit, they were constrained as to how far they could move. Consequently, they just used the ball of their feet to push off. That's why they looked like kangaroos when they walked. They flexed the boot and that propelled them forward. To Jim, walking on the moon felt just like walking on a trampoline. The same lightness, the same bouncy feeling. Falling down was the same too. If you fall down on a trampoline, you just put your hands out and catch yourself and push yourself back up. You can do the same thing on the moon. The surface, of course, was very soft. The only danger was the possibility of tearing your suit, and that was unlikely. 
it would take an extremely sharp object to penetrate the layers of the suit. If that happened, you'd have 10 to 20 seconds if the pressure immediately went to zero. If the suit remained above 2.5 PSI, you could get back into the spacecraft and repressurize, and you would probably be okay. In total, Dave and Jim both fell down twice while they were on the moon. When this happened, they helped each other up to keep from getting any dustier than they had to. Dirt on the suit absorbed heat from the sun and put a strain on the suit's cooling system. After a little more reconnoitering, it was time to offload the lunar dune buggy, the rover, the first surface transportation ever designed for another planet. Dave and Jim could not wait to take a spin. But before we get to that, here is a little history and background on this unique vehicle. During the early Apollo years, NASA scientists and engineers anticipated the need for a vehicle to aid the astronauts in exploring the moon. It was expected that bulky spacesuits, limited life supplies, and other inherent weaknesses would decrease man's mobility on the lunar surface. In 1964, with conceptual design of the Mobile Laboratory, or MOLAB, NASA began research on lunar surface vehicles. Over the next few years, an entire spectrum of vehicles was designed and studied. From these efforts came the knowledge that contributed directly to the development of the lunar roving vehicle. Its development required solution of many challenging technical problems for which there were no precedents in terrestrial vehicle design and operation. For example, the lack of an atmosphere on the moon, the extremes of surface temperatures, plus or minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit, the very weak gravity, one-sixth of Earth's, and the many unknowns associated with the lunar soil and topography. All these factors imposed severe and unique requirements on the LRV. The first manned landing on the moon, Apollo 11, and subsequent missions confirmed the long-recognized need for a lunar vehicle, a vehicle which would allow astronauts to cover more area, to conserve energy and life support materials, to transport additional equipment, and to return with more lunar soil samples. For even before these practical demonstrations, in May of 1969, NASA decided to proceed with the design and development of a lunar roving vehicle. The Marshall Space Flight Center at Huntsville, Alabama, where the Saturn V moon rocket had been developed, was assigned overall direction of the LRV program. Prime contractor was the Boeing Company, using facilities at Huntsville and Kent, Washington. Major subcontractor was GM's Delco Electronics Division in California. The LRV would be a two-man, four-wheeled vehicle, 10 feet 2 inches long, 44 inches high, with a 7.5-foot wheelbase, weighing 460 pounds earth weight, and capable of carrying a total payload of 1,080 pounds. The LRV would have five major systems, mobility, crew station, navigation, power, and thermal control. The mobility system, which must be able to cross 12-inch high obstacles and 28-inch diameter craters, consists of the wheels, traction drive, suspension, steering, and drive control electronics. The system was designed, developed, and tested by General Motors. 
The first assemblies were put through development tests to measure strength, deflection, endurance, and other factors. For example, driven on a rolling road fixture, the wheel assembly was tested under earth conditions, and later in test chambers, reproducing the environmental conditions of the moon. The LRV tires are made of a woven mesh of zinc-coated piano wire, to which titanium threads are riveted in a chevron pattern to keep the wheels from sinking into the soft lunar soil. Long-duration torture testing on this so-called carousel simulating the lunar surface verified the durability of the wheel design. The test assembly was supported by springs to relieve most of its weight, thus simulating the one-sixth gravity of the moon. A mobility test unit was used in early phases of development to validate the LRV mobility system. The astronauts participated, as they did in all aspects of LRV development. Two 36-volt silver-zinc batteries provide the vehicle's power. Each wheel is individually powered by a one-fourth horsepower electric motor, a highly efficient harmonic drive system originally developed by the U.S. Shoe Machinery Corporation for other purposes, is used with each motor, eliminating the need for a transmission and its gears. The suspension consists of a damper or shock absorber supported by triangular arms that pass the suspension loads to torsion bars. Other systems were also being developed. For example, a simple navigation system, which would allow astronauts to drive beyond sight of a lunar module and yet be able to return to it by the most direct route. The system works by recording direction and distance traveled from a starting point. In order to assure the proper physical relationship or interface between the vehicle and the astronauts in their pressurized spacesuits, several so-called crew station reviews were conducted, first in normal Earth gravity conditions and later in simulated 16th G. The LRV's crew station consists of the control and display console, seats and seat belts, armrests, footrests, hand and toe holds, floor panels, and fenders. For other crew station reviews and development testing, an LRV mock-up was installed in a KC-135 aircraft which flew parabolic flight paths. This provided brief periods of low gravity, simulating lunar conditions. One example of interface problems was the initial difficulty in getting onto and off of the LRV. Addition of a simple toehold plus astronaut training proved to be the solution. Another interface problem was the design of control switches, which could be easily manipulated by a gloved hand. Similar problems were involved in operation of the uniquely designed hand controller located between the two astronauts which provides steering, speed, and banking commands to the vehicle's drive control, electronics, and mechanical brake system. A major milestone in the lunar roving vehicle development program was delivery by General Motors of the 1G trainer vehicle to be used for astronaut training. Though heavier and stronger than an actual moon rover, since the crew and equipment weigh six times more on Earth, the trainer was practically identical in size, shape, and handling characteristics. One simple difference was the use of ordinary pneumatic rubber tires because of the extra weight of the vehicle. At the manned spacecraft center, the 1G trainer was operated 
using counterbalance springs to simulate the moon's gravitational field. Through operation of the trainer in this mode, astronauts were able to become accustomed to the LRV months before actual use during their mission. Storage and deployment of the vehicle provided major design challenges. As shown here by this special test unit built to equal on Earth the LRV's lunar weight, the vehicle had to fit within the tight wedge-shaped confines of one small section of the lunar module, about the volume contained in a family station wagon. Conversely, on the moon, the LRV has to essentially unfold itself by means of springs and deploy to the lunar surface locked in its operating configuration, all with minimum assistance from the astronauts. Further deployment tests were conducted using a full-weight LRV called a qualification test unit. The vehicle was deployed from a lunar module mock-up at the Grumman Aircraft Company contractor for the lunar modules. During these tests, technicians manually assisted the vehicle throughout the procedure. Since the deployment mechanisms were designed for the moon's weaker gravity and could not overcome the stronger gravity of the Earth. The main purpose of the qualification test unit was to make absolutely sure that nothing had been overlooked in terms of clearances and hardware operation. Manufacturing of the first flight LRV proceeded concurrently with the rigorous testing of non-flight units. As evidenced in this wheel fabrication, skilled and detailed handcrafting was involved in many of the LRV components. Early in 1971, production and testing of the first flight LRV neared completion. Vibration tests were conducted with the vehicle in both the folded and unfolded modes to determine critical frequencies. Other acceptance tests checked and rechecked every facet of the vehicle. The first flight model LRV was formally delivered to NASA by the prime contractor, Boeing, on March 10, 1971 two weeks ahead of schedule. It had been less than 18 months since inception of the LRV program, only 13 months since the prime contract was awarded, an accomplishment reflecting the outstanding effort and dedication of the joint NASA industry development team. After government acceptance of the vehicle, it was folded, covered, and crated for shipment to the Kennedy Space Center. After delivery to KSC, the vehicle was unfolded and completely checked out again, and another crew station review was conducted. The LRV was then folded for the final time and installed in its flight position inside the lunar module of the Apollo 15 spacecraft, several months before launch. The LRV had received its final go, while the rest of the Apollo and the Saturn V launch vehicle would undergo further checkouts. Then the entire Saturn Apollo vehicle was moved aboard the giant transporter from the vehicle assembly building three and one-half miles to the launch pad, where it would undergo constant check and recheck right up until launch date. On July 26, 1971, Apollo 15, carrying the first lunar roving vehicle aboard, was successfully launched.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 344 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, Oxygen Leak, Glass Ball, First Steps, and the Lunar Rover. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on August 13th. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 173 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. I had some afterthoughts on this episode. First, I want to thank donor Tom M., for supplying the CBS clips. I really enjoyed them, and there are a bunch more where they came from. So thank you very much, Tom. I really appreciate it. If you listen closely to some of those clips, you will also hear Alan Shepard, Arthur C. Clarke, and, of course, Wally Sherall. Now, Arthur C. Clarke, it's possible I could have left him out. I'm not sure whether he's still in there, but he was there commentating with the rest of them anyway. So, who left the urine dump valve open? They lost a good bit of oxygen from that mistake. Not enough to end the mission early, but certainly enough to cut into the reserve. Well, I have it narrowed down (laughs) to two suspects. I got to thinking, uh, do you think they, once the astronauts were all Fox, they had that discussion going something like, did you leave the urine dump valve open, Jim? No, Dave, I didn't do it, did you? (laughs) Someone did it, so I wonder who did that. I posted the picture of the green glass that the astronauts collected To me, this looked more like a clod than a ball or a sphere. But anyway, the pic is posted on the website, spacerockethistory.com. Check that out if you'd like to see it. How about that rover? What an amazing vehicle it was. It was completed only 13 months after the contract was let. I don't think there's any way we can do that today. We will continue next episode with deploying the rover from its suitcase. I wanted to spend some time on the rover since this J mission is the first use of it, and it was a great exploration tool. Now, keep in mind, it is almost impossible to describe in just words how that thing is deployed. So, I am assigning some homework. I want you to go to your web browser, search on Bing for Apollo Lunar Rover Deployment. Click on the Videos tab and you should find a 7-second animation of how it was deployed. 7 seconds of homework, that's not too bad. Now, there are also some better videos that you'll find in those search results. If you want to watch them, I'll give you extra credit. (laughs) Anyway, watch the video and you will better understand what I'm going to describe 
on the next episode. <laughs> I think that is the first homework assignment I have made on this podcast. So uh, remember to do your homework. <laughs> and finally, there are two upcoming space missions I want to recognize. First, the launch of Perseverance is supposed to take place on July 30th. Its mission is to seek signs of habitable conditions on Mars in the ancient past and also search for signs of past microbial life. The Mars Perseverance rover will include a drill that can collect core samples of the most promising rocks and soils and set them aside in a cache on the surface of Mars. The mission also provides opportunities to gather knowledge and demonstrate technologies that address the challenges of future human expeditions to Mars. These include testing a method for producing oxygen from the Martian atmosphere, identifying other resources such as subsurface water, improving landing techniques, and characterizing weather, dust, and other potential environmental conditions that could affect future astronauts living and working on Mars. This thing even has a helicopter. So this is a very important mission that I will be following. Good luck, NASA. And, of course, we don't want to forget that the manned SpaceX Dragon is due to return from the ISS on August 2nd with its crew. Of course, weather will drive that date. If the mission finishes according to plan, it will set the stage for SpaceX to regularly ferry astronauts to and from the ISS. Full end-to-end success would restore human spaceflight in the U.S. for the first time since the space shuttle program ended in 2011. Godspeed SpaceX and NASA. Okay, if you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions. I would like to thank Stuart C. from Hawaii, who donated at the Orion level and earned a moon emoji. Sven B. from Australia donated at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. Chris M. from the UK donated at the Soyuz level. Michael P. pledged on Patreon at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a rocket emoji. Robin P. from Switzerland donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Andrej S. from the Czech Republic sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level. John O. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Stephen S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Greg G. from Rhode Island pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our Patreon donors have reached 249. Our goal, of course, is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Now, what usually happens this time of month on Patreon is supporters' credit cards expire and we lose some donors. We sometimes get those donors back. So if you think your credit card is about to expire on Patreon, give that a quick check. We would appreciate that. 
Our total donors for 2020 have reached 369 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. We are excited to announce the Space Rocket History Archive Magnet in honor of the Archive Podcast. Many of you already have the original magnet, so we thought we would make this available. Like the original, it is three inches in diameter, circular, and beautifully magnificent. So if you already have the original magnet, you may want to add this one to your collection. Now for the winner of our drawing. Remember, you'll get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, two coasters, two stickers, two static clings, two holographic stickers, or the new SRH Archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Pete Pimentel. Pete Pimentel, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. Now for a baby update. I imagine some of you thought I was announcing the arrival of our granddaughter instead of the new magnet. And we thought she was arriving Saturday before last. Our daughter made it to the hospital, but everything settled down and she was sent home. Our newest grandchild has not made her appearance yet, and we are all on pins and needles waiting anxiously. Our daughter is between weeks 35 and 36 now and is being closely monitored because of complications with her previous pregnancy. We are very thankful that all things are good so far. I will be really surprised if our new granddaughter is not here by the next episode. (laughs) Thank you for all your good wishes and prayers. We really appreciate it. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth by Al Worden, Failure's Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, Internet Archive, CBS News, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 345 posted by Thursday, August 13th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now. Oh, and don't forget your homework.